High Noon. This is News Talk. You are listening to High Noon and this is Kira Kelly and we do have loads coming up for you, including a terror cell, an ISIS terror cell operating out of the west of Ireland and praising your children can be bad for you. Who knew? I suspect all of us may have had a suspicion. But what's caught my eye, maybe unsurprisingly today, is the Bishop of Waterford and Lismore, Bishop Fancy Cullinan, who has come out with uh, comments, I suppose is the best thing, on the HPV vaccine. Comments including that the vaccine is only 70% safe. Comments saying parents are being pressurised into agreeing to have the vaccine administered to their daughters when the money should be spent uh, on helping young people to stay chaste. Uh, He went on and said, I wonder could the large amount of money being spent on this vaccine be better spent on programmes which encourage our young people to live clean and chaste lives? I know the vaccine may do some good, but from what I have read, it is not the most effective way to guard against cervical cancer. Okay, (laughs) I I, I can't not speak on this and it's not anything about church bashing or bishop bashing or anything. But here's the thing. We've known for a long time that there is a movement within the anti-vaccine movement that has as its driving force the notion that um, protecting young women and young men from the consequences of sex, STIs, cancer, whatever they may be, uh, somehow increases promiscuity. And therefore, they are. Uh, it's a movement within the anti-vax lobby that doesn't like vaccines being given that can protect young people who have sex from the cancers that can be caused by that. Um, a couple of things. Abstinence programmes don't work. They have been tried. They have been tried in the States and elsewhere. Young people will have sex. Um, and hoping that they're going to be chased and not dealing with the actual issues of them not being chased is a stupid policy. A really stupid and dangerous policy that puts people's lives and health at risk. The vaccine is not 70% safe. The vaccine is safe, full stop. It protects young women against cervical cancer. It has taken a kicking in the media from people as misinformed as the good bishop himself. And what I would say to you is, give it to your kids, protect them. Don't for a moment think that your children down the line will not become sexually active because that's probably not the case. It is the small minority that that is the case for. And if there is something you can give your kids to protect them from cervical cancer or in boys' cases, head and neck cancers and other forms of cancers too, do it. I've done it for my kids. Do it for your kids. They deserve it. And this kind of thing where where we should be punished for promiscuity and it's some kind of a throwback where the morality is being imposed on people rather than protecting their health is like the 1950s all over again. This is something to be roundly condemned. The bishop needs to mind his own business. His business is not the health of young women. Now, I've said that. Let me know what you think. 53106. Do you think that uh, perhaps the bishop is right to be commenting on, on, on the sexual health of young women? Or do you, like me, think that this is a place where he has no business going? Um, let me know what you think. But, completely separate issue. As a country, we have been crippled, I think it's fair to say, by public transport strikes, particularly in the last 12 months. The bus Aaron strike lasted three weeks earlier this year. The Lewis strike in Dublin lasted two weeks last year. And now the Irish rail workers could be joining that list. Pay talks between Irish Rail and the unions broke down last night in the Workplace Relations Commission. And the two main drivers unions, that's the NBRU and SIP2, were allegedly seeking a 3.75% pay increase. It's understood that they were offered a 1.5% increase, along with some different 
measures, 19 different measures for uh, increased productivity. But the deal broke down when the NBRU says that they were left with no choice but to start balloting members for industrial action. Uh, Barry Kenny, who you probably know from Travel Tuesdays, but is also the Corporate Communications Manager for Irish Rail, joins me now to discuss this. Barry, thanks for talking to us on High Noon. Not at all, Kira. How are you? I'm very well. Listen, can you just explain for the ordinary commuter what this is going to mean? The, 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 the unions are balloting for strike. If they do go ahead and strike, when is that likely to be and how widely is that likely to affect services? It is too early to say that, Kira, and that's not to uh, avoid the question. I mean, ultimately, the process of the ballot and what industrial action that could result will be a matter for the trade unions to decide. Uh, our position is that there, there really is no need for a ballot at this point in time. We had a day of talks at the Workplace Relations Commission yesterday. There, were movement, there was movement on both sides within that, uh, and that process could have continued. But unfortunately, the trade unions chose to uh, pull out of those talks uh, last night and unfortunately are moving now to ballot uh, our employees for industrial action. In the, in the little opening there, what I said was our understanding is is that, that the unions have been offered a 1.5% increase in pay and in return the company would like some changes in rostering, some increased productivity, that kind of thing. Is that correct? Is that what you guys were offering? Yes, it is basically. I mean, we've uh, this, this is an issue. We've had a pay claim there uh, and it actually went to the Labour Court who referred us back to the Workplace Relations Commission basically to try to identify could we bridge the gap. The, the trade union's pay claim is for a straight pay increase, pay goes up, no, nothing else uh, associated with it at all. We're a loss-making company. We're a company that has accumulated losses of €160 million Euro over the economic crisis over the last decade. And we are really very, very close to insolvency. So if we just gave a straight pay increase, uh, as the trade unions are claiming, the company would be insolvent. And that would damage our service to customers and it would damage the security of employment of the people who work here. Uh, right across all of our grades. So we've been very clear through this process. We recognise there has been a pay freeze there, although we've paid increments over all the years uh, and haven't, like some other sectors, had a, 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 feel like a permanent pay cut. Um, we recognise people want more pay, but we said we do have to generate the funds to deliver that. So we went yesterday with really quite a comprehensive range of options, including some measures like payroll management, performance management, uh, absenteeism management, which don't affect directly what people do day in, day out, but which make the business run better and generate savings. And from that, we were going to, uh, we proposed yesterday in the talks, 1.5% per year over three years, an increase to all employees in Euro Dairn. 1.5% per year over three years. Is, is that actually 4.5%? Per- 3.5%? Yeah, 4.5% total uh, over the three years, but funded through a range of efficiency measures. And as I say, the, the, the Labour Court said, can you go to the, the, the Workplace Relations Commission and, you know, for a maximum of five weeks, because they didn't want to drag on and, and nobody wants us to drag on, uh, engage on this. We, we were initially with the, with the Workplace Relations Commission earlier this month, but on their timescale, the Labour Court timescale, there's another two weeks to discuss. And there was movement yesterday. So this rush to ballot and rush to threaten disruption to our customers is inexplicable because not only have we got another couple of weeks to thrash out these issues, the Labour Court also said anything you can't agree on, refer back to us and we will make a recommendation. So there is a route. We we put forward an option to improve earnings and there's also a route for that to be adjudicated on by the Independent Industrial Relations Forum in this country. So 
why anybody would pull out at this point of this process is really beyond us. Okay. Our understanding, and obviously if somebody from the NRBU or SIPTU wants to give us a statement, they can, but our understanding is that they're looking for the 3.75% pay increase simply because they haven't had a pay increase and simply because Bus Aaron have received a pay increase. So they're benchmarking themselves against other transport workers. Is that your understanding of it too? They just feel that they're due because they haven't had one in a while and other people have earned more money? They, they have, have their, their claim, you're, you're absolutely right, Kira. their claim is uh, we want pay increase because there hasn't been one in a while. They fight Dublin Bus and Lewis uh, and, and seek to portray that you know, all public transport is treated the same. Everybody has had pay increases, and Dublin Bus and Lewis did. But Bus Aaron didn't at all. Bus Aaron, like ourselves, were in a very difficult financial situation. And, in fact, it was quite the opposite that was implemented there. So there's no one-size-fits-all approach to pay in the public transport sector. Each company has to deal with the financial position that it has itself. And, you know, we can't do something that would pitch the company into insolvency because we're insolvent. What does it do to our services? What does it do to the security of employment of our, of our workforce? Um, there is a way to, to, to address this. Uh, and we cannot pretend that the accumulated losses of 160 million euro don't exist. The, the cumulative cost of the pay claim that has been put in over a three-year period is an extra 52 million euro in losses, and we would be broke. It is, it is, there's no way I can make it more clear we would be broke as a company. Okay, and, and let's let's take that position and say you would be broke, the company would be insolvent, and bring in the receivers, all that kind of stuff. And then perhaps some of the company be wind down, people lose their jobs. If the unions understand that and if, if they believe that to be the case, if they believe you, Barry Kenny, and what you're saying, that you're bona fide saying that we are 160 million in the hole, we can't give money without getting something in return. We're willing to give you money, but we're only willing to give you money under these circumstances. What bit of of what you're saying do you think that, that the unions either don't want to believe or are ignoring? You know, it, it seems obvious for those of us who are sitting on the outside, well, if the company is losing money, doesn't have the money to pay the pay rise without, without the corresponding increases in productivity, then that can't happen. But clearly the unions feel something different. Is it a breakdown in trust? Is it brinksmanship and gamesmanship on their part? Or is it a fact that they think that if they do go on strike, they'll hold the company and maybe the country to ransom until you'll, you'll cave in? Yeah, I, I don't want to in, interpret motivations, but we have opened the books to the trade unions. There has been independent assessment where trade, the trade unions' own specialists have come in, and we, we publish our annual report. So it is there uh, in black and white. Uh, and, you know, obviously it's very disappointing the talks uh, uh, broke down last night. We would say we will go back and re-engage at any time. We moved yesterday. One of the proposals in our initial document was a, a freeze on increments. As part of the process yesterday, we withdrew that. The trade unions moved a bit yesterday as well. So when there is actually movement happening, why withdraw from a means of resolving this? Because it will only be resolved through talking and through engagement and through the industrial relations machinery of the state. And there's a very clear path in terms of addressing that. So you know, we would say to the trade unions today, everybody understands that people want to see improvements in earnings. We do want to give that and to follow the process that has been, that has been set out. And let us get it, because if we get this right, then we've got a more sustainable future for the company. And that means it's more secure employment for people who work here. And more importantly, we're in a better position to respond to the needs of people who are travelling on the trains every day. Okay. 
Barry, Tom has texted and he said, why do the unions say they have not gotten a pay increase when they get increments every year? Is that not an increase in pay? Can you just explain for us what the difference between increments and pay increases is? Because people don't obviously understand maybe in the private sector. Yeah, well, the vast majority of that, virtually everybody who works here would be on a pay scale. And that would be over a number of years. So when you initially appointed to a role, you're at one point of that scale. And as you gain the knowledge and experience, you move up that scale. So right through the economic crisis, we continue to pay the increments. So, uh, you know, I would say the majority of people in Europe there did see pay increases during that time, but it was within their agreed salary scale. And as I say, we, we did have a 25-month temporary pay cut from uh, September 2014 to October 2016. We reinstated that in full last October. So as I say, quite a lot of people will have seen improved earnings, but the pay scales themselves have been unchanged over that time since 2008. Okay. Barry, last question for you. Obviously, the unions have said that they're going to ballot now and, and there may be industrial action. Do you, do you hope that that can still be averted or do you think that, that this may look like an eventuality that it's probably going to happen? It, it definitely can be averted. I mean, I, I'm saying it here. I will, I will say it anywhere. We will go back to the Workplace Relations Commission immediately on this. And if we can't resolve it, we will take that referral back to the Labour Court as the Labour Court set out uh, as the path. Uh, You know, we we hope this isn't something that's tactical. Uh, We do hope that the the ballot process is put aside and the trade unions will re-engage with us because everybody, everybody loses. uh, If we have a dispute, we will lose financially and be in an even worse position in terms of trying to respond to the employee's wish for improved earnings. Okay, my thanks there to Barry Kenny, who is, of course, Corporate Communications Manager with Irish Rail on that possible imminent industrial uh, action that may happen with Irish Rail. Lots of you getting in touch on this as well. Pat says compulsory arbitration is essential and industries should have a no strike clause. Unions want to extort the public so they won't agree to arbitration. That's from Pat. And Gavin says public transport is a public service and should not be run as a corporation on a for profits basis. And Paul says close down the railways and turn the permanent ways into cycle and walking tracks. There's no justification for rail in a sparsely populated country with pretty good and improving motorway systems. Gert Tichoum being the latest. Uh, Paul, I think we still think we're going to need our trains. Coming up next, a discovery of an ISIS terror cell in Galway. Stay tuned. Hi, new. This is News Talk. Now, Gardaí are investigating a suspected ISIL terror group based in the west of Ireland. The organised terror cell is reportedly headed by two Chechen brothers who have been living in Ireland for a number of years. And to discuss this, I'm joined now on the line by security analyst Declan Paris. Declan, what do we know about this particular cell? Very little in the sense that we should remember that this is still at the uh, investigative stage. And of course, you know, Garda Shikana would not be officially commenting on, on this in a direct way until the, such time as they probably make arrests. Um, but what, what is known about it, uh, as you say, that two Chechens are involved. Um, I think we should be careful even about using nomenclature such as a cell, because it, it indicates then that it's something of a highly organized nature. This could turn out to be something very similar to arrests that were, uh, you know, cells that were arrested in both Dublin and Waterford earlier this year that your listeners may remember, yeah. where those people were alleged to be involved in funneling uh, funds yeah. to ISIL-related networks. Now, 
personally, I think this may not turn out to be the case. I think it might be more likely to be these individuals may have been involved in some sort of radicalization or attempts to suborn uh, young Islamic men and youths into a, a more radicalized mindset. Um, and time will tell. The reason I said that is the, the indication of the, the Chechen involvement. These people have been fighting a vicious war against the Russians in their own country for some time, and they have been known for their level of combativeness and viciousness in the wars in Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan. So these guys uh, are actually war-hardened already, the Chechens, because of what they have well, done with the Russians? Well, we should be careful to emphasize, in general, yeah. uh, these individuals that have been talked about in the news reports today, we don't know enough about. But, you know, it's more likely if we had to err on the side of caution, uh, if they're uh, suspected of radicalized behavior, they're more likely to have a, a track record that is not channeling funds, but more about active combat. Uh, they're usually the diehards in any of the action that has taken place more recently in Mosul or Raqqa. Uh, the Chechen fighters, uh, they were un- quite unpopular within some of the Iraqi groupings uh, some years back because uh, they would always want to fight in the most vicious fashion and carry out uh, various heinous acts that the ordinary uh, Iraqi fighters uh, considered too brutal okay. uh, because it was their territory. So th- that gives us just uh, that gives us some indication it's of cause, what you could be dealing with. Cause for concern, yeah. clearly. Um, Declan, is it your understanding that how, how the Gardaí approached this kind of investigation is is that if they identify a group that they suspect of being involved in this type of terrorism or this type of terrorist activity, that their first move isn't to move in an arrest, it's to try and uh, gather intelligence and, and to try and get as much out of the cell by way of knowledge before any action is taken against them? Yes, the Gardaí at any given time are, are watching a number of organisations, or not organisations, that's the wrong word to use. So that indicates that there's some, you know, there's a lot of nodes of one particular type yeah. of organisation. Whereas the reality is you have pockets of groups who, for the most part, could be acting in a very disparate way. Like time will tell. And that's why it's a very sensible move by the uh, Garda Shikana that they don't rush in and just make a few flashy arrests. They're working on these matters in concert with colleagues across the water in different European intelligence services. Sure. And it's a, it's a rush to put together the pieces of the picture. And, you know, the important thing is that the general public are, are being kept safe once these groups, once these disparate groups are being monitored. <clears throat> but the thing to know is, are they some radical, uh, just radical mouthpieces, uh, but not of any major uh, danger to anyone? Are they doing what the, the previous <clears throat> people arrested are alleged to have done, funneling, fun, channeling funds, which doesn't make them a threat per se here, but a threat in general to you know, Western Europe, but not a, a, an immediate threat. Or are they trying to radicalize people to encourage them? Uh, heretofore, the encouragement would have been to go and fight in ISIS-held territory, but that kind of territory doesn't exist anymore, and the numbers are down because there isn't a to go and fight in the Middle East. So the fear would be now, if you have radical elements existing in the Islamic community in Ireland, which Islamic community members have warned us about themselves yes, over the last course, number yeah. of months, but are these people then uh, encouraged them to carry out acts of violence within Ireland? And that would be the prime objective to nail down. And Declan, uh, by our security service. Declan, in terms of you're talking about them fundraising and channeling funds, you, clearly they can't go out with you know shaking a, shaking a bucket and saying you know <laughs> no, no, don't no, donate no, no, to ISIS. Wouldn't be, there wouldn't be related. Uh, even I would suspect that this would not be even about raising funds in Ireland 
per se, but this would be Ireland in that particular um, example we were talking about, where Ireland was a node in a network, if you know what I mean, a, yeah. a, a, a junction point in a network of funneling uh, funds uh, through various waypoints in a way that they wouldn't be suspected. So moving finances around the world, in effect. Yeah, and I, in that occasion, and that uh, particularly, I think the Waterford one, it's alleged that um, uh, you know there was a greater network within the UK that had spread into Ireland, and it was about trying to find points that wouldn't come directly under the gaze of the security forces in either side of the Irish Sea to quietly, you know, work away using online means for the most part to uh, to move money around. Okay. Uh, lastly, Declan. Our current level of threat is set at that it's possible there could be an attack here, but it's not considered hugely likely at the moment. Yeah. But nonetheless, is it correct to say that the Gardaí have been authorised to use a shoot first, shoot first policy should they think that any terror action is unfolding? Well, now, we should be very clear about this because something like this could give rise to a lot of... Um, uh, uh, shall we say, feelings of insecurity in the general public. Yeah. Uh, for a start, the correct term is that the security level in this state is at moderate, okay. which means that there is the potential for an attack, but not a high likelihood. And I would concur with that. Uh, we're part of Western Europe. We saw our Swedish neighbours uh, have an attack, and we have to be aware that, that there is a possibility of that. But we're not, we're not high up the list for a variety of of strategic reasons and for a variety of reasons in terms of how big our Islamic community is and how big the radicalized elements may be within it. It's, it that, that's quite small. Okay. Now, the other point you mentioned with regards to what effectively is a, a type of shoot-to-kill policy, yeah. it would be standard training for Western European police officers now that if they came on a scene that they determined was a, an active Islamic terrorist operation, where people were being killed. Uh, it, it's known the trade in terms of training as marauding terrorist scenario. Well, then you're, the officers arriving to the scene would have to be prepared to go, go in cold, as, as it said, where they would have to start identifying targets and shooting straight away in order to try and preserve as much as possible innocent civilian life. Okay. Now, that's very different to an overall policy of when they come across a situation on a more general basis, that may involve Islamic radicals, that there would be there would be open fire. What I'm talking about there, and it's not, I've never heard this actually uh, articulated uh, on the record in public, but I'm just telling you what would be normal best practice within Western European security services in responding to a terrorist attack, based particularly on the experience of the Bataclan uh, atrocity, where you your 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 firearms officers have to be prepared when they go into that situation in a, to start opening fire in a way that they wouldn't have before, yeah. where the dormant procedure would be to cordon off, establish a line of communication with the armed individuals, because normally they didn't want to, to die. Normally the guards away. were quite cautious about shooting, in fairness to the guards. Ah, yes. Well, they had very strict protocols, I mean, uh, about opening fire, as indeed do the defence forces. And usually it's, it's to do with the defence of your own life, defence of uh, the lives of those around you, the lives of innocent civilians, uh, to prevent uh, life-taking lethal force being transported elsewhere. There, there are very strict protocols. But the thing is, if you happen on a scene, if you're an armed um, member of the state services and you are responding to a scene that appears to be an Islamic... Now, and the reason I say Islamic, it's, 
it's, we have to be delicate to some extent, but the truth of the matter is that the current iteration of terrorism you and I are talking about is, is, uh, is inspired by a particular strain of uh, Islamic thinking that, is, that means that the operatives are invariably looking to have the direct confrontation okay. and to, to kill. Okay. And so the, the police officer has to be prepared, as they say, to go in cold, identify the target, in order to preserve life. Okay. But I haven't heard the Agardi articulate this as a stipulated okay. um, right. position at this point in time. Okay, listen, thanks for that. That is security analyst Declan Powers on that finding that there is a, a terror group based in the west of Ireland that has been discovered. Uh, coming up next, praising your children can be bad for them. Stay tuned. Hi New. This is News Talk. And you're very welcome back to High Noon with Kira Kelly here on News Talk. Now, Gardaí are investigating a suspected ISIL terror group based in the west of Ireland. The organised terror cell is reportedly headed by two Chechen brothers who have been living in Ireland for a number of years. And to discuss this, I'm joined now on the line by security analyst Declan Paris. Declan, what do we know about this particular cell? Very little in the sense that we should remember that this is still at the uh, investigative stage. And of course, you know, Garda Shikana would not be officially commenting on, on this in a direct way until the, such time as they probably make arrests. Um, but what, what is known about it, uh, as you say, the two Chechens are involved. Um, I think we should be careful even about using nomenclature such as a cell, because it, it indicates then that it's something of a highly organized nature. This could turn out to be something very similar to arrests that were, uh, you know, cells that were arrested in both Dublin and Waterford earlier this year that your listeners may remember, yeah. where those people were alleged to be involved in funneling uh, funds yeah. to ISIL-related networks. Now, uh, personally, I think this may not turn out to be the case. I think it might be more likely to be these individuals may have been involved in some sort of radicalization or attempts to suborn uh, young Islamic men and youths into a, a more radicalized mindset. Um, and time will tell. The reason I said that is the, the indication of the, the Chechen involvement. These people have been fighting a vicious war against the Russians in their own country for some time. And they have been known for their level of combativeness and viciousness in the wars in Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan. So these guys uh, are actually war hardened already, the Chechens, because of what they have well, done with the Russians. Well, we should be careful to emphasize in general. Yeah. Uh, these individuals that are being talked about in the news reports today, we don't know enough about. But, you know, it's more likely if we had to err on the side of caution. Uh, if they're uh, suspected of radicalized behavior, they're more likely to have a, a track record that is not channeling funds, but more about active combat. Uh, they're usually the diehards in any of the action that has taken place more recently in Mosul or Raqqa. Uh, the Chechen fighters, uh, they were un- quite unpopular within some of the Iraqi groupings uh, some years back because uh, they would always want to fight in the most vicious fashion and carry out uh, various heinous acts that the ordinary uh, Iraqi fighters uh, consider too brutal okay. uh, because it was their territory. So th- that gives us just uh, that gives us some indication it's of cause, what you could be dealing. With. Cause for concern, yeah. clearly. Um, Declan, is it your understanding that how how the Gardaí approach this kind of investigation is is that if they identify a group that they suspect of being involved in this type of terrorism or this type of terrorist activity? 
that their first move isn't to move in an arrest, it's to try and uh, gather intelligence and, and to try and get as much out of the cell by way of knowledge before any action is taken against them. Yes, so the Gardaí at any given time are, are watching a number of organisations, or not organisations, that's the wrong word to use. So that indicates that there's some, you know, there's a lot of nodes of one particular type yeah. of organisation. Whereas the reality is you have pockets of groups who, for the most part, could be acting in a very disparate way. Like time will tell. And that's why it's a very sensible move by the uh, Gardaí Shikana that they don't rush in and just make a few flashy arrests. They're working on these matters in concert with colleagues across the water in different European intelligence services. Sure. And it's a, it's a rush to put together the pieces of the picture. And, you know, the important thing is that the general public are, are being kept safe once these groups, once these disparate groups are being monitored. <clears throat> but the thing to know is, are they some radical, uh, just radical mouthpieces, uh, but not of any major uh, danger to anyone? Are they doing what the, the previous <clears throat> people arrested are alleged to have done, funneling, fun, channeling funds, which doesn't make them a threat per se here, but a threat in general to, you know, Western Europe, but not a, a, an immediate threat? Or are they trying to radicalize people to encourage them? Uh, heretofore, the encouragement would have been to go and fight in ISIS-held territory, but that kind of territory doesn't exist anymore, and the numbers are down because there isn't a to go and fight in the Middle East. So the fear would be now, if you have radical elements existing in the Islamic community in Ireland, which Islamic community members have warned us about themselves yes, over the last course, number yeah. of months, but are these people then uh, encouraged them to carry out acts of violence within Ireland? And that would be the prime objective to nail down. And Declan, uh, by our security service. Declan, in terms of some of them fundraising and channeling funds, you, clearly they can't go out with you know shaking a, shaking a bucket and saying you know no, no don't no, donate no, no, to no, ISIS. Wouldn't be, they wouldn't be related. Even I would suspect that this would not be even about raising funds in Ireland per se, but this would be Ireland in that particular um, example we were talking about, where Ireland was a node in a network, if you know what I mean, a, yeah. a, a, a junction point in a network of funneling uh, funds. Uh, through various waypoints in a way that they wouldn't be suspected. So moving finances around the world, in effect. Yeah, and in that occasion, and that particularly, I think, the Waterford one, it's alleged that, um, you know, there was a greater network within the UK that had spread into Ireland, and it was about trying to find points that wouldn't come directly under the gaze of the security forces in either side of the Irish Sea to quietly, you know, work away using online means for the most part to... uh, to move money around. Okay. Uh, lastly, Declan, our current level of threat is set at that it's possible there could be an attack here, but it's not considered hugely likely at the moment. Yeah. But nonetheless, is it correct to say that the Gardaí have been authorised to use a shoot-first po- shoot policy should they think that any terror action is unfolding? Well, now, uh, we should be very clear about this because something like this could give rise to a lot of... Um, uh, shall we say, feelings of insecurity in the general public. Yeah. Uh, for a start, the correct term is that the security level in this state is at moderate, okay. which means that there is the potential for an attack, but not a high likelihood. And I would concur with that. We're part of Western Europe. We saw our Swedish neighbours uh, have an attack, and we have to be aware that, that there is a possibility of that. But we're not, we're not high up the list for a variety of of strategic reasons and for a variety of reasons in terms of how big our Islamic community is and how big 
the radicalised elements may be within it. It's, that, that's quite small. Okay. Now, the other point you mentioned with regards to what effectively is a, a type of shoot-to-kill policy, yeah. it would be standard training for Western European police officers now that if they came on a scene that they determined was a, an active Islamic terrorist operation where people were being killed, uh, it, it's known the trade in terms of training as marauding terrorist scenario. Well, then you're, the officers arriving to the scene would have to be prepared to go go in cold, as, as it said, where they would have to start identifying targets and shooting straight away in order to try and preserve as much as possible innocent civilian life. Okay. Now, that's very different to an overall policy of when they come across a situation on a more general basis that may involve Islamic radicals that there would be there would be open fire. What I'm talking about there, and it's not, I've never heard this actually uh, articulated uh, on the record in public, but I'm just telling you what would be normal best practice within Western European security services in responding to a terrorist attack, based particularly on the experience of the Bataclan uh, atrocity, where you, your, your, your firearms officers have to be prepared when they go into that situation in a, to start open fire in a way that they wouldn't have before, yeah. where the DORMA procedure would be to cordon off, establish a line of communication with the armed individuals, because normally they didn't want to, to die. Normally the guards away. were quite cautious about shooting, in fairness to the guards. Ah, yes. Well, they have very strict protocols, I mean, uh, about open fire, as indeed do the defence forces. And usually it's, it's to do with the defence of your own life, defence of uh, the lives of those around you, the lives of innocent civilians, uh, to prevent... Uh, life-taking lethal force being transported elsewhere. There, there are very strict protocols. But the thing is, if you happen on a scene, if you're an armed um, member of the state services and you are responding to a scene that appears to be an Islamic... Now, and the reason I say Islamic, it's, it's, we have to be delicate to some extent, but the truth of the matter is that the current iteration of terrorism you and I are talking about is, is, uh, is inspired by a particular strain of uh, uh, Islamic thinking that is that means that the operatives are invariably looking to have the direct confrontation okay. and to, to kill. Okay. And so the, the police officer has to be prepared, as they say, to go in cold, identify the target in order to preserve life. Okay. But I haven't heard the Agardi articulate this as a stipulated okay. um, all right. position at this point in time. Okay, listen, thanks for that. That is security analyst Declan Powers on that finding that there is a, a terror group based in the west of Ireland that has been discovered. Uh, coming up next, praising your children can be bad for them. Stay tuned. Hi Noon. This is News Talk. And you're very welcome back to High Noon with Kira Kelly here on News Talk. Lots and lots of you getting involved, particularly on that last interview. Sharon says we had Gail O'Rourke just on, obviously talking about her experience of being involved uh, in the whole issue around a right to die. Uh, Sharon says, I am in awe of Gail's strength. Her humanity is beautiful. And Connor in Blackrock says, what a lovely person. What an amazing interview. And, and I have to say, guys, even as I was interviewing Gail, my jaw was dropping. She, she is incredible. And lots of you getting involved as well about praising children. As someone who was always praised, who was always praised for being smart while growing up, I found as I got older, it had a bad f- psychological effect to me. 
I studied art uh, at college and a course where effort or extra study did not necessarily lead to doing well. And there were times in my studies that I was receiving poor marks. And when this happened, I experienced bouts of severe anxiety and I realised I developed a link between being smart and my self-confidence. And this is a danger when focusing only on one aspect of a person when their children. Praise should be varied across various aspects of a child's life so that they don't fixate on that one aspect and become over-dependent on their success in that area. Um, Another one here says there's a fine line between encouragement and praise. Parents always need to encourage. And you are still texting me about... (laughs) about the Bishop of Waterford. Uh, Camilla says, Kira, what is your problem with chaste and clean young people? Why is it something that should not be encouraged? Instead, let's tell everyone how to have sex instead of saying they don't actually have to. A bit of a moral guideline and respect for themselves wouldn't go amiss. Um, Look, Camilla, it's not that I'm encouraging people to have sex. I just believe that they're going to do it anyway. And I think it's very important that we protect people rather than just chastise them. That would be where I'm coming from on all of that. Now, you may have already heard on the news that Saudi Arabia announced on Tuesday that it was going to allow women to drive, overturning a long-standing policy that has become a global symbol of the repression of women. The change, which won't happen immediately, was announced on state television and in simultaneous media events in Washington. And joining me now in studio to discuss the Saudi women now taking behind the wheel um, is Director of Consumer Affairs with AA Ireland, Conor Faulkner. Conor, what do you make of this? Well, I mean, it's, it's, uh, the cynic in me says that, you know, they're being dragged kicking and screaming into something like the 17th century or 18th century. Because, I mean, for most of us, when they look at, uh, at a regime like Saudi Arabia, it's very, very hard to get your head around where they ever got their pre-existing rules. But, I mean, as it's been known for a long time, women are not allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia. And that's not even primarily illegal. Um, uh, uh, situation. It's actually a fatwa, a religious judgment, and it's it's culturally enforced, and it's um, it's it's thoroughly reinforced by the society there. So I would think even after uh, July of next year, when this goes uh, live, it will still take a very brave Saudi woman actually to drive, and particularly to drive unaccompanied. There's a there's a fascinating woman um, called Manal Al Sharif, um, who was one of the leading campaigners on on the right to drive for women in Saudi Arabia, and and she had sort of led protests about it back in 2011. There's a brilliant TED talk that she gives, which you can Google uh, Manal Al Sharif. Her TED talk, fascinating, fascinating. I mean, actually changing the rule is you know obviously self evidently welcome and an indicator of progress, but it's a long way from a battle one for Saudi's women, that's for sure. And, and yet, let's be clear, the women who did fight for this were very brave because not only could they be jailed for driving and many of them did drive t- as a protest, they could also get 10 lashes. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's a very brutal regime. Extraordinary, yeah. I think it's fair to say that Saudi operates a policy of gender apartheid. I mean, it's very mm-hmm. similar to, to the, the system of apartheid that they would have had in South Africa. Yeah. Segregation is strictly enforced, different entrances, different exits keep, you know, men and women separate yeah. and women having less rights. Saudi have brought in some new rights in the last while, including they brought in the right for women, say, to to run for election in certain cases. But the rights have so many complicated conditions attached yeah, to them. So many caveats attached indeed. That it's it's very tricky. Well, a, a Saudi woman um, is, is, is certainly a second class citizen and in fact has no independence at all and really can't function on ordinary social levels without the continual permission of uh, a male 
guardian. And that male guardian could be a cousin, could be a brother, could be an uncle, could, could be, be her a father, son. could be her son even. Yeah. Now, uh, so then, you know, the society to a degree normalizes and you'll have some, they tend to be a very educated population, which is um, one of those things. Um, so you'll find, you know, some families are progressive in outlook and um, with male guidance and with male support, it's possible for the Saudi woman to lead a sort of very active and and engaged um, and sort of quasi-equal life. But it's absolutely at the whim of her her male family members. And, and, uh, you know, even a right fulsomely granted to you by a a male partner who's, you know, very empowering and all that, it's still not truly a right if he can whip it away. If it's at his discretion. Um, So it, it to us looking in, it seems very, very uh, dysfunctional. And there was actually, this is one of the things Manal al-Sharif came up with, there was actually a, a study, Maria, or at least what they called a study, when they were looking at the, at the right for women to drive. And they actually carried out what purported to be an academic exercise. And they concluded that in all the countries in the world where women are allowed to, ri- to drive, um, they're uh, far less moral regimes and have far more crimes and moral crimes associated with, uh, with, with women's behaviour. Of course, an absolute contrived piece of nonsense because the only country in the world uh, was Saudi Arabia. So, um, as I say, it's not even truly that it's a law. I mean, it's it's a religious judgment uh, in, in previously endorsed by the king and now retracted by the current king. And there's still some degree of ambivalence about it. I mean, when that protest happened in 2011, the women pointed out that actually there was no specific law that they broke. Um, but as I say, it's 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 a hard and fast custom and practice, and it takes a very very brave individual to defy yeah, absolutely. it. Absolutely, and I think we can't stress how difficult it is for the women because Saudi has a landmass that's ten times the size of the UK. Mm-hmm. It's mainly desert mm-hmm. and there's very little public transport. Yes. So unless you have access to a car, th- there is practically no way of going anywhere. Yeah, you simply cannot function. And and this is, this is you know, the, the people laying down these rules appreciate that. And in fact, that's yeah. by design. I mean, there is no public transport because they don't want people You're making women utterly dependent. You're making women utterly dependent. And, and, and in theory, giving a woman a right to drive is, uh, look, look, it's progress and the people who have com- been campaigning for it are calling it out as strong progress, so perhaps it is. But but it's so left-handed, if you like, and there are so many caveats attached to it. I mean, what is the point in me telling you that you now have the right to drive if you still need my permission to walk out the front door? Yes, um, but, and but I it, need to have a, a chaperone in order to yes. drive sitting in the car yeah. next to me and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, actually, in theory, they're saying that the women would have a right to drive alone, but again... Um, it, it just would take enormous courage for a woman to actually do that. Connor, some of what's been said about this is, is that this isn't some kind of, in a way, I mean, it, it, you could argue that it is a human rights victory, but, but mm. that that's not the principle behind it. Oil prices are falling. Yeah. Saudi's economy needs to change and evolve. You did mention the fact that there is actually more third level graduates who are female than yeah. male in Saudi Arabia, right, yeah. but they make up 13% only of the workforce because it's so difficult for Saudi Arabian women to hold yes. down a job because of all the ridiculous, let's just call a spade a spade, ridiculous constraints put on them socially. So they can't work because they can't go anywhere. They can't do anything. They're not allowed to interface with men at work. So therefore, you and I wouldn't be allowed to have this interview because we're in the same room looking at each other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So none of that. So, But but that the the current monarchy, the current regime recognises that the economy needs to change, that the kind of jobs that were propped up by the oil-rich Saudi Arabia Mm -hmm. will be no more and therefore they're going to have to change the workforce which will mean involving women. So this is quite a pragmatic rather than a principled decision, isn't it? Yeah, well often when you do get uh, principles, moral principles being advanced, it tends in the end to happen for pragmatic reasons rather than for reasons of principle. I mean, if you you could roll back in history and say in, in the Western world, 
world where we would consider ourselves to be much, much further down the, the, uh, an enlightened path. But when did women truly come into the workforce in, in the Western world? You probably have to say the Second World War. I mean, that's what sort of, you know, shattered taboos that, uh, and, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't put the toothpaste back in the tube afterwards. I mean, the society had fundamentally changed. Um, but, so, but, but that's relatively recent. And in the Saudi case, they are, they are playing a long game. So perhaps they're being slightly cynical on, on, on the one hand. They, they have to plan for a post-oil era. And you know, no matter where you are in a competitive world, you simply cannot thrive if you, for, for perverse insular reasons, refuse to use half of your productive capacity. Um, then, you know, you're never going to thrive in a competitive world. So to some degree, there's, uh, um, there's pragmatism sort of moving the needle in the direction where I think everybody would like to see it move. And I, and I think the, the powers that be in Saudi Arabia are probably cautious about that in a sense, in that there, there's probably a conservative feeling that if they allow things to move even at all, that they'll never be able to stop the trickle turning into a, a landslide and that they'll lose control and that it'll fundamentally change Saudi society. And there's probably a fear about that which is retarding this sort of progress. But look, to state it very, very mildly, the tide of history is against them in this. They are the one remaining country on the planet that still adopts uh, policies of this sort, and not just about driving, but about the universal, comprehensive and complete uh, repression of, of half of their population for reasons of gender. And, uh, you know, eventually, it's not just post-oil, we will have to reach a sort of post um, extreme religious nonsense phase in the planet's history as well. Um, and I don't quite know how we get there, but uh, maybe allowing people to drive is just the tiniest, tiniest bit of progress. On that note, Conor Faulkner, you're not wrong. Uh, that is, of course, Director of Consumer Affairs with AA Ireland. I, I completely agree with you on absolutely everything you've just said. High noon. This is News Talk. And you're very welcome back to High Noon with Kira Kelly here on News Talk. Lots and lots of you getting involved, particularly on that last interview. Sharon says we had Gail O'Rourke just on, obviously talking about her experience of being involved uh, in the whole issue around a right to die. Uh, Sharon says, I am in awe of Gail's strength. Her humanity is beautiful. And Connor in Blackrock says, what a lovely person. What an amazing interview. And, and I have to say, guys, even as I was interviewing Gail, my jaw was dropping. She, she is incredible. And lots of you getting involved as well about praising children. As someone who was always praised, who was always praised for being smart while growing up, I found as I got older, it had a bad psychological effect to me. I studied art uh, at college and a course where effort or extra study did not necessarily lead to doing well. And there were times in my studies that I was receiving poor marks. And when this happened, I experienced bouts of severe anxiety. And I realised I developed a link between being smart and my self-confidence. And this is a danger when focusing only on one aspect of a person when they're children. Praise should be varied across various aspects of a child's life so that they don't fixate on that one aspect and become over-dependent on their success in that area. Um, Another one here says there's a fine line between encouragement and praise. Parents always need to encourage. And you are still texting me about <laughs> about the Bishop of Waterford. Uh, Camilla says, Kira, what is your problem with chaste and clean young people? Why is it something that should not be encouraged? Instead, let's tell everyone how to have sex instead of saying they don't actually have to. A bit of a moral guideline and respect for themselves wouldn't go amiss. Um, 
look, Camilla, it's not that I'm encouraging people to have sex. I just believe that they're going to do it anyway. And I think it's very important that we protect people rather than just chastise them. That would be where I'm coming from on all of that. Now, you may have already heard on the news that Saudi Arabia announced on Tuesday that it was going to allow women to drive overturning a long-standing policy that has become a global symbol of the repression of women. The change, which won't happen immediately, was announced on state television and in simultaneous media events in Washington. And joining me now in studio to discuss the Saudi women now taking behind the wheel um, is Director of Consumer Affairs with AA Ireland, Conor Faulkner. Conor, what do you make of this? Well, I mean, it's it's uh, the cynic in me says that, you know, they're being dragged kicking and screaming into something like the 17th century or 18th century. Because, I mean, for most of us, when they look at, uh, at a regime like Saudi Arabia, it's very, very hard to get your head around where they ever got their pre-existing rules. But, I mean, as it's been known for a long time, women are not allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia. And that's not even primarily a legal um, uh, uh, situation. It's actually a fatwa, a religious judgment, and it's it's culturally enforced, and it's um, it's it's thoroughly reinforced by the society there. So I would think even after uh, July of next year, when this goes uh, live, it will still take a very brave Saudi woman actually to drive, and particularly to drive unaccompanied. There's a there's a fascinating woman um, called Manal Al Sharif, um, who was one of the leading campaigners on on the right to drive for women in Saudi Arabia, and and she had sort of led protests about it back in 2011. There's a brilliant TED talk that she gives, which you can Google uh, Manal Al Sharif. Her TED talk, fascinating, fascinating. I mean, actually changing the rule is you know obviously self evidently welcome and an indicator of progress, but it's a long way from a battle one for Saudi's women, that's for sure. And, and yet, let's be clear, the women who did fight for this were very brave because not only could they be jailed for driving and many of them did drive t- as a protest, they could also get 10 lashes. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's a very brutal regime. Extraordinary, yeah. I think it's fair to say that Saudi operates a policy of gender apartheid. I mean, it's very mm-hmm. similar to, to the, the system of apartheid that they would have had in South Africa. Yeah. Segregation is strictly enforced, different entrances, different exits keep, you know, men and women separate yeah. and women having less rights. Saudi have brought in some new rights in the last while, including they brought in the right for women, say, to to run for election in certain cases. But the rights have so many complicated conditions attached yeah, to them. So many caveats attached indeed. That it's it's very tricky. Well, a, a Saudi woman um, is, is, is certainly a second class citizen and in fact has no independence at all and really can't function on ordinary social levels without the continual permission of uh, a male guardian. And that male guardian could be a cousin, could be a brother, could be an uncle, could, could be, be a father, son. could be her son even. Yeah. Now, uh, so then, you know, the society to a degree normalises and you'll have some, they tend to be a very educated population, which is um, you know, one of those things. Um, so you'll find, you know, some families are progressive in outlook and um, with male guidance and with male support, it's possible for the Saudi woman to leave, lead a sort of very active and, and engaged um, and sort of quasi-equal life. But it's absolutely at the whim of her her male family members. And, and uh, you know, even a right fulsomely granted to you by, a, by a, a male partner who's, you know, very empowering and all that, it's still not truly a right if he can whip it away. If it's at his discretion. Um, so it, it to us looking in, it seems very, very uh, dysfunctional. And there was actually, this is one of the things Manal al-Sharif came up with, there was actually a, a study 
Maria, or at least what they called a study, when they were looking at the at the right for women to drive, and they actually carried out what purported to be an academic exercise, and they concluded that in all the countries in the world where women are allowed to ride to drive, um, they're uh, far less moral regimes and have far more crimes and moral crimes associated with uh, with with women behaving. Of course, an absolute contrived piece of nonsense because the only country in the world uh, was Saudi Arabia. So, um, as I say, it's not even truly that it's a law. I mean, it's it's a religious judgment uh, in, in previously endorsed by the king and now retracted by the current king and there's still some degree of ambivalence about it. I mean when that protest happened in 2011 the women pointed out that actually there was no specific law that they broke um, but as I say it's, it's, it's a, a hard and fast custom and practice and it takes a very very brave individual to defy yeah, it. Absolutely. And I think we can't stress how difficult it is for the women because Saudi has a land mass that's ten times the size of the UK mm-hmm. it's mainly desert mm-hmm. and there's very little public transport yes. so unless you have access to a car there is practically no way of going anywhere. Yeah, you simply cannot function. And and this is this is you know, the the people laying down these rules appreciate that. And in fact, that's yeah. by design. I mean, there is no public transport because they don't want people. You're making publicly. women utterly dependent. You're making women utterly dependent. And 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 in theory, giving a woman a right to drive is, uh, look, look, it's progress and the people who've com- been campaigning for it are calling it out as strong progress, so perhaps it is. But but it's so left-handed, if you like, and there are so many caveats attached to it. I mean, what is the point in me telling you that you now have the right to drive if you still need my permission to walk out the front door? Yes, um, but, and but I it, need to have a, a chaperone in order yes. to drive sitting in the car yeah. next to me and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, actually, in theory, they're saying that the women would have a right to drive alone, but again... Um, it, it just would take enormous courage for a woman to actually do that. Connor, some of what's been said about this is, is that this isn't some kind of, in a way, I mean, it, it, you could argue that it is a human rights victory, but, but mm. that that's not the principle behind it. Oil prices are falling. Yeah. Saudi's economy needs to change and evolve. You did mention the fact that there is actually more third level graduates who are female than yeah. male in Saudi Arabia, right, yeah. but they make up 13% only of the workforce because it's so difficult for Saudi Arabian women to hold yes. down a job because of all the ridiculous, let's just call a spade a spade, ridiculous constraints put on them socially. So they can't work because they can't go anywhere. They can't do anything. They're not allowed to interface yes. with men at work. So therefore, you and I wouldn't be allowed to have this interview because we're in the same room looking at each other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so none of that. So, But but that the, the current monarchy, the current regime recognises that the economy yeah. needs to change, that the kind of jobs that were propped up by the oil-rich Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. will be no more and therefore they're going to have to change the workforce, which will mean involving women. Absolutely. So this is quite a pragmatic rather than a principled decision, isn't it? Yeah, well, often when you do get uh, principles, moral principles being advanced, it tends in the end to happen for pragmatic reasons rather than for reasons of principle. I mean, you, if you, you could roll back in history and say in, in the Western world, where we would consider ourselves to be much, much further down the, the, uh, an enlightened path. But when did women truly come into the workforce in, in the Western world? You probably have to say the Second World War. I mean, that's what sort of, you know, shattered taboos that, uh, and, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't put the toothpaste back in the tube afterwards. I mean, the society had fundamentally changed. Um, but, so, but, but that's relatively recent. And in the Saudi case, they are, uh, they are playing a long game. So perhaps they're being slightly cynical on, on, on the one hand. They, they have to plan for a post oil era and you know no matter where you are in a competitive world you simply cannot thrive if you for for perverse insular reasons refuse to use half of your productive capacity um, then you know you're never going to thrive in a competitive world so to some degree there's um, there's pragmatism 
sort of moving the needle in the direction where I think everybody would like to see it move. And I, and I think the, the powers that be in Saudi Arabia are probably cautious about that in a sense, in that there, there's probably a conservative feeling that if they allow things to move even at all, that they'll never be able to stop the trickle turning into a, a landslide and that they'll lose control and that it'll fundamentally change Saudi society. And there's probably a fear about that which is retarding this sort of progress. But look, to state it very, very mildly, the tide of history is against them in this. They are the one remaining country on the planet that still adopts uh, policies of this sort and not just about driving but about the universal, comprehensive and complete uh, repression of, of half of their population for reasons of gender. And, uh, you know, eventually, it's not just post-oil, the, we will have to reach a sort of post-extreme um, religious nonsense phase in the planet's history as well. Um, and I don't quite know how we get there, but uh, maybe allowing people to drive is just the tiniest, tiniest bit of progress. On that note, Conor Faulkner, you're not wrong. Uh, that is, of course, Director of Consumer Affairs with AA Ireland. I, I completely agree with you on absolutely everything you've just said. High noon. This is News Talk.